Good morning again. This morning we are continuing our study through Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. Last Sunday we were in chapter 10 and we looked at the first uh, six verses of that chapter which focused in on Paul's ministry ideology. Or in other words, a way of saying that would be the guiding principles behind what he did and what he said and how he carried out the work of the ministry. And we learned last week that in the ministry we exhibit meekness, not weakness. We learned that we must fight spiritual battles and not with other people. And then finally we learned that we must embrace obedience rather than disobedience. Now we spent a great deal of time uh, focused in on the concepts of strongholds in our lives last week. Um, if you were not able to be here for that message, uh, I, you know, I would like to say this every Sunday, but I'm going to say it this Sunday. If you were not able to be here for that message, I really want to encourage you to uh, go back, watch our live stream, uh, go on our website, listen to it there, go to your favorite podcasting, uh, you know, service and look up Temple Baptist Church of Rogers, Arkansas, and you can find that. I really want to encourage you to do that. Um, I, I think that it is something that we all need to hear in our lives. Myself, absolutely the first in line. So uh, this morning, as we continue in chapter 10, uh, we're going to see how Paul continues to defend his ministry by communicating his motivation for ministry. I appreciate what you had to say about that earlier, uh, Brother Matt, and how that we need to uh, have a proper motivation in the ministry. Um, now we're going to take some time to reflect specifically on Paul's ambition for ministry. Uh, and you see his ambition for ministry wasn't focused inward. It wasn't focused on himself. It wasn't focused on his achievement, but rather on his inadequacies and his ability to deflect the glory for all that happened to the Lord and praise God rather than keeping that praise for himself. Now, as we walk through this passage, I hope that you will take the opportunity to evaluate your own life, to determine your motivations, to determine what it is that drives you to do the things that you do when you serve the Lord. Now, one of the things that, that I have tried to stress in my teaching since coming here uh, almost nine years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Almost nine years ago. I've said this over and over and over again. Um, but uh, it's very important that when we study the Bible, we must always understand a text within its context, or we must understand what the Bible says within the passage that surrounds that text because the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. Now a big part of understanding the context is determining how the text fits into the, the rest of the words around it grammatically. 
how it fits in grammatically to the overall passage. Now, especially in Paul's writings, if you've uh, read many of his letters, if you pay attention to the punctuation there, you will see that some of his sentences go on and on and on and on. And, you know, um, if I, if I, when I was an English teacher, I don't know if you knew I did that, but uh, when I was an English teacher at Conway Christian School, if I wanted to um, get my students uh, to love me, <laughs> actually when I was trying to give them something to keep them busy, I would give them a long sentence out of Paul's letters and say, diagram this sentence. <laughs> um, and, you know, some of them actually did it better than probably what I could. But anyway, um, so we need to understand when we're studying scripture where a sentence begins and where a sentence ends. Ends. We need to understand what sentences go together in order to form a paragraph. And this is going to help us to determine the immediate context and then the next greater context as we study. And that helps us understand the overall meaning of a particular passage. Now, I'm going to stop with the explanation of that and move on. But I do want to say, if this is something new to you, and this is something that you really don't feel like you've got a handle on in your own Bible study, I want to encourage you to come reach out to me. We have a discipleship pathway that is a 9 to 18 week study that is specifically designed to teach you how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, and how to discover God's will for yourself. I would love to put that in your hands if that's something that you would like to do. And I'll find someone to help walk you through it if that's what you need as well. Now, I, I feel like it's important uh, to remind you of something real quickly because here I am, I'm talking about all of, the, uh, all of this about punctuation and so forth, but you know, you may or may not realize, but ancient Greek writing did not have any punctuation included. In fact, ancient Greek writing did not even have spaces in between the words. Every line of text was capital letters only, no spaces, no punctuation. And if they got to the end of the line and they weren't finished with a word, they just went to the next line. And you're thinking, how in the world could they understand that? Well, what we need to realize is as we read our Bibles, and I, you know, I encourage you to have a, a Bible that uh, is in paragraph format and you know, to help you to understand what the context is. We need to understand that that is not inspired by God. The words of God, the word of God is inspired. Punctuation and paragraph markings and subject headings are not inspired. Okay? You, we need to understand that. They are not. Um, and so... Uh, The reason for this, I mean, even the, the whole division of chapters, uh, there, there are lots of examples of this where, you know, editors and publishers in the past would, would divide things up and, and sometimes verse one actually goes with the previous chapter, you know? Um, they've done a great job and they did this for the purpose of helping us to find things. 
Because if I just said, hey, you remember that verse somewhere close to the middle of the, the book of Romans? You remember what that says? Yeah. But if I say, hey, do you remember what Romans 8.28 says? Oh. So it helps us to, to categorize those things in our mind. So, but that's not the way it started out. Again, all capital letters, no punctuation, no spaces between words. Every now and then there might be a space like a, a blank line in between major sections of scripture. But even that was not always the case. So you might wonder, how in the world were they able to understand what they were reading? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? Because if you handed me an ancient Greek manuscript with all capitals, no spaces, and no punctuation, I would struggle mightily to be able to do it. Now, I, I would still struggle uh, to do it with the one that is lowercase capitals and spaces and punctuation. That's still a struggle, but it would really be a struggle if I got the ancient scripts. Well, uh, it really wasn't as hard for them to understand as you might think. So let me illustrate this by sharing with you an illustration that was originally shared by Michael Palmer on his website, greeklanguage.com. So try to read this slide. Did you have any problems reading that? None whatsoever, right? In fact, not only did you know what the text is saying, you also knew where the spaces should have been in between the words. You also knew what punctuation should be at the end of the sentence because of the context of what is being said. You can easily recognize these words and their implication because of the order of the words. Well, Palmer explains, he said, native speakers of ancient Greek in the same way could recognize where one word ended and another began, even though the spaces were not written. They could also distinguish a question from a direct statement without the need of punctuation. But here's the problem. You and I are not speakers of ancient Greek. We are speakers, native speakers, well, most of us at least, native speakers of the English language. And so that's why we're able to do it. So what does that mean for us then? Well, it means that we have to trust the publishers of the different Bible translations of whatever Bible we choose to study from in order to help us out there, to know where those sentences begin and where those paragraphs uh, go together. Now, I typically do all of my sermon prep and study utilizing the English Standard Version of the Bible. I will look at other translations as well, but ESV is my standard. And if you look at the screen, you might recognize this as uh, a screenshot from Bible Gateway. And the one that's uh, highlighted, you can see, is the ESV. Now, I'm not expecting any of you to be able to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as it is on the screen. But I do want you to notice that in the ESV that it, verse 1 is the first paragraph, verse 7 is the second paragraph, and verse 13 is the third paragraph. But if you compare that 
to the Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, and the New Living Translation. All three of those uh, publishers, those Bible publishers, chose to make verse 12 the beginning of a paragraph rather than verse 13. Uh, actually, in the New Living Translation, the publishers chose to divide chapter 10 into eight paragraphs instead of three, uh, like the others. But that's okay, too. That's more of a modern way of writing uh, where a paragraph might just be one sentence, right? And so that's what they've done. But all of these others include verse 12 in the last paragraph. So for our purposes today, this is how I'm going to seek to understand the greater context of the chapter. One paragraph begins in verse 1, one in verse 7, and the last in verse 12. And we're going to be focused on those last two verses, or sorry, those last two paragraphs in our sermon time this morning. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I chose to skip the last two points of my sermon. Those last two points of my sermon were from paragraph 2, verses 7 through 11. And so in many ways, because of the context of our text, um, today's study was going to be a continuation of last week's study no matter what. I just stopped a little bit earlier uh, than I had originally planned. So as we dive into these last two paragraphs, um, I want us to take time right now, and we're going to read verses 7 through 11. And look at what we have there to learn this morning. And then in a few minutes, we'll go on and we'll read verses 12 through 18 uh, so that we can understand those passages within their immediate context as well. All right. So let's look at the Bible and what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. The Bible says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we also, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Well, this morning, the first thing I want us to uh, notice from this passage is that uh, confidence should be in true power, not in false pretenses. You see, Paul is asking the Corinthians to compare his ministry with the ministry of those false teachers that he has mentioned on several occasions before. That's why he says here in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. He's saying, take a look at these false teachers that are causing all these problems. These super apostles, as he dubs them in the next chapter, that'll be a fun discussion uh, when we get to chapter 11. But he calls them the super apostles, also known as false teachers, who were outwardly impressive, but they depended upon this facade of being impressive 
because their teaching lacked the power of God. So we need to place confidence in true power, not in false pretenses. One article explained it this way. They said the super apostles were false teachers who appeared to be superior to Paul in their manner and in their authority. And so Paul calls them super apostles in a facetious manner. You see this in verse 7 when he says, look at what is before your eyes. This is actually a veiled reproof, a very kind way of reproving the Corinthians. Because the fact is, is they have been looking at these false teachers, the ones who were before their eyes, the ones that were in their presence, and they've been looking at them in the wrong way. So essentially what Paul is challenging the Corinthians to do here is to pick a new metric for evaluating the leaders in their church. He said these people look impressive, but they're not. It's just a facade. Even though Paul was unimpressive outwardly, his ministry was attended with the power of God. A power that had the ability to torpedo strongholds hostile to Christ. And these infiltrators, these false teachers, while outwardly impressive, were spiritually impotent. John Calvin wrote of this. He said that Paul is chiding or scolding the Corinthians for letting their eyes be dazzled by an empty show. Folks, the fact of the matter is, is this is so relevant to churches today because too many times today we're being dazzled by empty shows. These false teachers were trying to discredit Paul by attacking his person as a way to cast doubt upon his teaching. Now Paul wasn't trying to impress anyone with his charisma, nor was he trying to impress anyone with his good looks. He was simply trying to serve the Lord by guiding this group of believers in Corinth to do what was right for the building up of the church. So as soon as he acknowledges here that he is boasting, he says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, as soon as he acknowledges that, he immediately follows with two clarifications. One regarding his source of authority. He said, our authority which the Lord gave. You see, Paul did not have to boast. He did not have to impress because the authority of God himself was in him to that church. He was the, the apostle who took the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. So the authority had been given to him by God. So he boasts, but he immediately says, but hey, it's because of where my authority come, came from. And another thing was regarding the purpose of his authority. Why had God given him this authority? It was for the building up. It says, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you. 
That's why I speak into your lives. And that's why he says, I am telling you, you need to do these things. You see, folks, Paul's confidence is not in himself. But rather, it's in the power of God to work in him and through him. He's not boasting to promote himself. His purpose is to build up the members of the church at Corinth. And so as we serve the Lord in ministry, because remember, we've talked about multiple times now, every member is a minister. As we all, each of us, serve in our ministries, we must not make it our ambition to be seen as impressive by those who are watching us. That's not the point. That's not the point of ministry at all. But rather, we must seek to build others up and then spotlight the source of power that is at work in us and through us. What is that? It's the Lord. He's the source of our power and our strength. So we have confidence in true power not false pretenses the second thing i want us to notice in this paragraph is we must have confidence in the message not in the messenger confidence in the message but not in the messenger you know paul doesn't flatter himself here when he parrots what they are saying about him uh, in verse 9 he says um or no yeah, two things that he talks about. Verse 9, it's talking about his letters. It says that they describe his letters as being frightening. The, the Greek word there is ekphobeo, which is what we get phobia from. It is, it is scary for these people to read Paul's letters is what he's saying or what they're saying about his letters. His letters are hard letters, difficult to read, challenging, telling them all these things that they need to do. So he describes his letter as frightening, but then he tells how they described Paul himself in verse 10. For his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. You see, they have described Paul here as a man who has strong words on paper from a distance, but he's a weak, mealy-mouthed man when he's in your presence. That's what they're saying about Paul. So in verse 11, Paul is trying to assure the Corinthians that he was not a duplicitous man. He was not one person from a distance and another person when he was present with them. He said, I do what I say in those letters when I am in your presence. So even though the, the messenger is unimpressive, Paul wants them to listen and obey the message that he is sending in this letter. Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here in this point. Confidence in the message, not in the messenger. 
Because the fact is, is that we must have some level of confidence in the messenger. I'm not trying to discount that. Um, I am not saying that the life of the messenger is unimportant. I am not saying that. Authenticity in ministry is essential for the effectiveness of the message. Notice again what he said in verse 11. Everything I'm writing, those are the things I'm doing when I'm in your presence. There was an authenticity. Paul was embracing obedience rather than disobedience to harken back to last week. So Paul reminds them that his life is characteristics of the things that he's challenging them to do. He is not hypocritical. He practices what he preaches. But what I am saying is this. The message is paramount. That's the most important thing. The message. Because you know what? The messenger will let you down. I will. I know. And I know Paul did at times too. Because he writes about it. The messenger will let you down. But the message is what is paramount. We should not allow a person's looks or their ability to speak well or not so well detract from the message that is being presented. There was a, well, there were lots of writings uh, back in the, the first and second and third and fourth century A.D., about what happened during the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Paul and the other apostles. One of those writings is a book called The Acts of Paul. It was uh, looked at as heretical for different reasons by Tertullian and, and uh, Eusebius. Uh, these are historians. But one of the things that we find in this little book of The Acts of Paul is a description, a physical description of who the apostle Paul was this was written in the second century AD and this is what it says about Paul it describes the apostle as a short bald bow-legged single-browed man with a long nose <laughs> can you think of anything less impressive than that <laughs> And his speech was likewise. The word rendered here in this verse 10 that says his speech was of no account could equally be translated as his speech was despised or his speech was contemptible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 6, we'll look at that soon enough. He will acknowledge in that verse that he is unskilled in his speaking. And that's a point he already made earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul was thoroughly unimpressive physically and or, you know, oratorily in his speech. So what do we learn from this? I think the thing that we can learn from this that is most important to so many of us this morning 
is that God does not choose to use us based on our eloquence and our good looks. And amens rang out through the building. God doesn't care how eloquent we are. Think about Moses. That was his argument, right? God said, that's not an argument. He doesn't care how well we speak. He doesn't care how well, how good looking we are. I'm wondering if you've experienced this as well. I've experienced it many times in my life, but have you ever been reading something or, or you've been listening to something or a sermon or, or whatever, and, and then you see a picture of the author or you, or you see a video of the speaker and you are amazed that something good or profound could come from that particular person because they look like absolutely nothing? Have you ever had that happen? Let me share an example. Do you see this man on the screen? I do not want to mention his name this morning because I don't want to disparage him publicly but, uh, and have it documented forever in our podcast. But do you see this man? He kind of looks like a cross between Mr. Rogers and the Lorax from Dr. Seuss cartoons. Right? No matter what he looks like. And by the way, the way he talks is pretty, pretty funny too. But no matter what he looks like, no matter what he talks like, this man's writings have impacted my spiritual walk in tremendous ways. Praise God. He does not choose to use us based on our eloquence or our good looks. Another thing we can learn from this is that God is willing and able to use each and every person who is willing to submit his or her life to the call of ministry. You may not have a voice for radio. Rather, you may have a face for radio. <laughs> but folks, that doesn't matter to the Lord and it doesn't matter to the work of the ministry. Paul was not a very impressive man from the outside looking in. But he was a spiritual giant in the work of the ministry. And that is what really matters. Well, let's keep going and read the last several verses in this chapter beginning in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, I want to direct your attention there again. Paul continues this letter by saying these words. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but we but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. 
to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area, another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So far this morning, we've looked at the fact that we need to have confidence in true power, not false pretenses. That we need to have confidence in the message, not the messenger. Now, third thing I want us to notice this morning is that we must have concentration on my mission not on the mission of others. Folks, we have a mission as a church. That mission is the Great Commission. In fact, I wrote an article about that on the back of your bulletin. You should read it, it you know, if you have time. Maybe not right now, but, you know, sometime. We have a mission as a church. We partner together with other churches uh, in our association to carry out that mission to the world. And next Sunday we'll have an opportunity to take up a special offering for that purpose as we celebrate World Missions Day. We have a commission from the Lord. But folks, each of us has his or own his or her own ministry to which we have been called. And there are two things that I think we need to grasp in this regard. The first of those two things is this. We do not need to compare ourselves with other people. Amen. We do not compare ourselves with one another. This is what those super apostles were doing. Dane Ortland said this. He said, all they know how to do is to measure and compare themselves with one another. This is what the flesh loves to do. I love what he says here. It is the nicotine of the soul for someone functioning out of gospel deficit. Hmm. When our hearts are not alive to the full and free approval of God, we naturally vacuum up approval anywhere else we can find it. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, a lot of you have, are familiar with the, the Love Languages book and, and there are different ways that people uh, receive love and different ways people give love. I love words of affirmation. I, I do. That, that is a way that you can show love to me is by, by affirming me in certain ways. But folks, I don't need your affirmation if I will focus on the one who has given me complete and total acceptance. I only need to work for his approval, not the approval of others. I love how Paul writes this here 
after he talks about those that compare themselves to others. The end of verse 12 says, they are without understanding. Folks, if we spend all of our time comparing ourselves to one another or comparing our church with another church, we learn nothing from it. That's what Paul is saying here. There is no self-awareness that comes when we play this comparison game. Comparing ourselves to others will go one of two ways. And I, I think the way it goes in your life is dependent upon you know, your basic outlook in life. All right? So one way it could go is that we will compare ourselves to someone who seems to be much better than we are and therefore we criticize ourselves needlessly. I don't want you to raise your hand, but it, does that describe you? Maybe. The other option, if we play this comparison game, is that we will compare ourselves to someone who seems to be much worse than we are, and so we shamelessly puff ourselves up needlessly. You see, when we compare to one another, we're not comparing what God wants us to compare to. If we want to compare ourselves to someone, let's compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, who described himself, as we learned last week in Matthew 11, as a gentle and lowly person. A humble and meek and gentle-spirited person. That's who God wants us to compare ourselves with. The problem is, is that when we compare ourselves to him, we pale in comparison. And that is why passages such as Romans chapter 3 are such a blessing and such so important to us. I love what God's word translation, and if you're unfamiliar with that, it's a fairly new translation. I love what God's word translation does with Romans 3. It says, now the way to receive God's approval has been made plain in a way other than the laws and the scriptures, Moses' teachings and the prophets tell us this. Everyone who believes has God's approval through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no difference between people because all have sinned and they have fallen short of, the glory, of God's glory. We, most of us, especially if we worked in Awana or children's ministry, we, most of us know that Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But did you read 22? Everyone who believes through faith in Jesus Christ has God's approval. Praise God. We do not have to measure up to the example set forth by Jesus because we have God's acceptance. We have God's approval because of our faith in him. He calls us to be conformed to the image of his son because he wants us to become more and more like Jesus. But our ability to do so is not his acceptance of us is not dependent upon our ability to do so. Praise the Lord. So let's stop.
comparing ourselves with one another. The second thing that I notice here, as far as our, our ministry is concerned, is that we do not need to overstep our calling. In other words, we need to stay in our lanes. Let me read again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 and 14. It says, but we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So let's not overstep our calling. My ministry partner in the Philippines when we were missionaries there uh, was a guy named Robert Murphy. Um, Robert, um, well, the best way to describe Robert is everything that I am in my outlook on life and the way I do things, Robert is the opposite. And um, Robert was a blessing uh, to me for many years that we worked together. But he had a great saying to sum up this biblical concept that we find here in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, and 14. And he would say this. He would say, that's not my Kool-Aid. That's not my Kool-Aid. And what he meant when he said this, it wasn't that he didn't care about what was going on. It wasn't that he was against what was happening, but rather when he said this, this was his way of acknowledging that a situation, that the situation at hand, whatever we were dealing with, talking about whatever, it was beyond his particular calling and responsibility. Therefore, he was not going to interject his opinion or his influence on that situation. Now, if I shared that definition of what Robert meant by this is not my Kool-Aid with Robert, he would slap me. He said, you think too much, Wade. And I said, yeah. But that's what it is. He's not getting involved in something that's not his call. It's not his responsibility. It's not his Kool-Aid. You know, we could learn a lot from this if we would take it to heart. Did you hear me? We learn a lot. Because, folks, ministry is not a competition. There are no winners and losers in ministry. There are ones who are faithful and ones who are unfaithful. And God alone is going to be the one to decide who it is that is faithful and who it is that is unfaithful. And that will happen at the judgment seat of Christ after we are long gone from this world. You know, as I was thinking about this ministry principle, you know, what we can extract from this passage, I asked myself this question. I said, what would it look like in our church today if all of our members embraced these two things? 
If everyone said, you know, that's not my Kool-Aid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what's my calling, and I'm not going to mess with anyone else, and I'm not going to compare myself with anyone else. What would that look like? Well, this is what I came up with. Short list. I hope you can read it. If not, it's available in the Uversion interactive notes, so maybe a little more legible. I think first, pride and jealousy would fade into oblivion if we would embrace these ideas. We would not get puffed up about ministry success, and we would not get jealousy about others' ministry success. We would stir up one another to love and good works, just like Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we ought to do. We would encourage. I think if we embrace these ideas, ministry would happen outside the walls of this building. And I believe that no individual person or even a group of people would be able to know everything that is happening through the ministry of this church if we would embrace this. Folks, I don't want to know everything that's happening because if I know everything that's happening, that means not, to, not enough is happening. Do you understand me? I should have asked permission, but I didn't, so I'm going to just say this. My wife made a comment yesterday or the day before. We were at a funeral, and, um, you know, a couple hours away, and, you know, she made the comment that she had wanted to be a part of the women's ministry activity, the event that took place here at the church, but this funeral took her out of that. And she said, but, you know, isn't it great that a women's ministry event can happen and be taken care of completely and I don't have to be involved at all? Ministry should be accomplished in the lives of every minister in a church. Do you know who that is? Raise your hand. <laughs> it's you. We don't have to know all that's happening. And I think that's what will happen if we will embrace this idea of getting rid of the comparisons and staying in our lane and doing what God has called us to do. I love what Paul wrote in Romans 12. Verse 3, he says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in, in proportion to our faith. In, if service, in our serving. 
The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Folks, we all have a role in this ministry. We are each members of this body. What is your function? Will you function? You know, when we function as the body of Christ, when we function as it is supposed to function, this last point becomes a no-brainer. The last thing I want us to look at this morning is that commendation should come from God, not man. These super apostles that Paul was contending with in Corinth were commending themselves and they were criticizing Paul. If you look at verse 18, it says, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In another letter that Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he wrote these words. He said, For, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, he says. Now even though Paul is not looking for the approval of men, that does not mean that he has no desire for the ministry to grow. For his influence to grow. Because we see that in those verses that I just skipped over when I went to 18. In 15, 16, and 17, we see Paul's desire for the ministry to grow. Not so he can be, you know, more highly esteemed, but for the purpose of the ministry. You see, so long as Paul is having to focus his efforts, though, on the spiritual growth of the people at Corinth, he is unable to grow the ministry the way that he wants his influence to grow. Look at verse 15 again. The second part, it says, But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Until their faith increased, he couldn't move beyond them. There's a lot of implications there that I don't have time to unpack this morning. And he said, I need you to grow so that the kingdom of God can grow. He had a desire for his influence to grow. And the reason for this desire is clearly stated in verse 16. He says, again in 15, Our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. He wants to go further. He wants to reach more people. Not so he can tell them about all the things he's done before, but so that they can hear the truth of the gospel. Paul is seeking to increase, or he's not seeking to increase his fame, but he is 
seeking to increase God's name and make God's name known among the nations for his honor, for his glory. And so when it comes to Paul's ministry ambition, that's the big point that we've been looking at this morning. One thing is absolutely clear. When dealing with his ambition, it was never about him. It was never about his advancement or his achievement. You know, a lot of times when you think about an ambitious person or, or ambition in general, you think about somebody that will do whatever it takes to climb up that ladder, you know, the corporate ladder or whatever, whatever. Ambition, by definition, is a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. It is a desire and determination to achieve success. Typically, again, ambition is understood as working hard to achieve something for yourself. It's, it's typically understood as a determination to be successful in you fill in the blank. Be successful in my job. Be successful in this athletic endeavor. Be successful in whatever. That's how we often think of ambition. But folks, ambition in and of itself is not wrong. The question is, what are we ambitious for? We should have ambition. We should have that desire and determination. We should have a strong desire to do and to achieve something for the Lord. We should have a determination to remain faithful to the Lord. We should have a willingness to work hard in the work of the ministry. I'll tell you, there's nothing that gets under my skin more than a preacher who's lazy. That's a side note, soapbox I'll get off of now. But we need to work hard in the work of the ministry. We need to have a desire to achieve success but not temporal success. We need to try, strive to, to achieve success that has eternal value. And folks, as we seek to serve the Lord in the ministry, whatever that ministry may be that you have been called to do, we must do so with a strong desire and a determination to accomplish what he has called us to do for his honor and for his glory. And folks, it won't be easy. It will not be glamorous. In fact, he promises us the exact opposite. But it will be worth it all to one day hear those blessed words spoken to us by our Savior when he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what I want to hear someday. Father, we thank you for our time together in your word this morning. 
And Father, I thank you for the example that you've given to us in Paul and the writings that he has shared these truths with us. And so, Father, now as we take these words and we consider their implication on our lives, Father, I just pray that you'll help us to find our ministry. That we'll not be guilty of comparing ourselves with others. That we'll not get involved in other people's business, but we'll just stay focused on what you've called us to do. Lord, help us to be faithful so that we can experience that success for your honor, for your glory, for the enlargement of the kingdom of God. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.